Our episode today is on democratic confederalism and Abdullah Ajalan, and we'll be examining the links between Ajalan's theory and the current autonomous administration in northeast Syria, or Rojava, as well as the through lines between those and the ecology of freedom by Murray Bookchin, which we discussed last time. But I just want to begin with a message of unequivocal support for the protests and riots that are happening in Minneapolis and all over the United States right now. Alex and I actually recorded a short conversation about it last night, and by this morning so much more had happened that it already felt out of date, and it didn't feel like we were adding much to this discussion, so uh, I ended up scrapping it. Um, But I do recommend that everyone check out some of the -the on-the-ground coverage being done by Unicorn Riot in Minneapolis. Uh, I'll leave a link in the description for their footage from last night. I'm also leaving a link for the Minnesota Freedom Fund, which is an organization that raises money to pay criminal bail for those that can't afford it, which seems to be something that's about to be sorely needed. Uh, And I encourage those who can to make a donation or check out some of the other organizations they're currently partnered with. If you've been thinking about donating to something or being a more active advocate for systemic change or being one of the brave people working on the ground, now is the time. And with all that said, let's talk about something completely different. This is We Read Theory. Welcome to We Read Theory, the podcast where we read theory so you don't have to. I'm Mark. And I'm Alex. If you listened to our previous episode covering Murray Bookchin and the ecology of freedom, then a lot of Abdullah Ajalan's ideas will look very familiar to you. While he began his political career as a Marxist, Ajalan was heavily influenced by Bookchin's work while in Turkish prison. Bookchin finishes out the ecology of freedom with a vision of a bright future in which small communes administer themselves locally and cooperate in larger communes when necessary, and in which All members of society are guaranteed the right to the necessities of life, and all are equal regardless of age, sex, or even ability. Bookchin is often referred to as an anarchist, and it's easy to see why, given his assertion that the state is an inherently oppressive institution that shouldn't exist. But Bookchin labeled himself a communalist, and the system he advocated for communalism. Ajalan has never been coy about the degree to which he was influenced by communalism. He identified himself as a student of Bookchin's in a 2004 letter, in which he expressed a desire to apply communalism to the specific struggles endemic in the Middle East. Authoritarianism, sexism, a pervasive ethnic intolerance. By 2004, Ajalan had already been in Turkish custody for half a decade, and he remains there today. Probably the most interesting thing about Ajalan is the degree to which he's continued to influence the political climate of the Middle East, even from prison. When he founded the PKK, or the Kurdish Workers' Party, in 1978, It was a Marxist organization with the goal of creating an independent Kurdish state. However, the decidedly non-Marxist views we're about to see in democratic confederalism have been largely adopted as a political program by the PKK. Furthermore, democratic confederalism has formed the basis of the autonomous administration of North and East Syria, commonly called Rojava. Now, if you're a leftist online, there's about a 104% chance you've heard of this place before. The internet is already filled with pieces on all mediums providing a deep dive into life in Rojava, exalting its achievements in the fights against ISIS and for human rights, and even critiquing the places in which Rojava fails to live up to its ambitions, 
We're going to do all that, but this is we read theory. So we're most interested in the works of political writing that inspired it. To that end, we examine democratic confederalism. Democratic confederalism was released in 2011, the same year that the Syrian civil war broke out. That war is what created the political space for the creation of the YPG, or the People's Protection Units, which took the opportunity to secure the territory which now makes up Rojava over the following years. You can essentially view democratic confederalism as a declaration of the ideological ambitions of the project that was now unfolding. More than anything else, democratic confederalism is a rejection of nationalism as a path to any kind of positive change for the Kurds or any other group in the Middle East. This is mainly because the nation-state, as it exists today, is inextricable from capitalism. In fact, Ajalan defines the nation-state as the fusion of capital and state power. Capital is concerned with profit, not people, and so will always enforce a social order that is homogenous and pushes people towards more productive behavior. The fact that nationalists likewise desire a homogenous society makes nationalism and capitalism a match made in heaven, but it also makes nationalism a non-starter for anyone whose goal is lasting peace. The Middle East, like much of the world, is a mosaic of ethnic diversity. Arabs, Turks, Kurds, Persians, Armenians, Jews, Azeris, all have moved through, settled, and enriched the region culturally and economically. But, of course, this diversity has also been the source of friction, unrest, and violence over the millennia. The nationalist solution is to guarantee each national group a homeland, but this is doomed to failure. These groups don't exist in unified blocks, they're scattered here and there. Small areas are often the home to a vast number of different ethnic and cultural identities. Nation-states are in part defined by hard borders, so any line that gets drawn will inevitably leave many on the wrong side. Beyond that, many groups are so small in population and so spread out that even approximate national borders would be impossible to draw at all. These people end up being outsiders no matter what nation they're in. The tendency for nation-states to enforce an ethnic and cultural hegemony in service of capital means that those who don't fit into the hegemony will be victims of ethnic oppression at best, and ethnic cleansing at worst. We also know from Bookchin, and see reiterated by Ajalan, that the state is built on sexist hierarchies that force women into the domestic sphere and basically treat them like commodities. The nation-state, at its best, is repressive against women, ethnic minorities, and anyone who adheres to a non-hegemonic culture or religion, i.e. most of the people that are going to end up living in it. This isn't theory. This is just a recounting of the history of the Middle East since Sykes-Picot. Uh, who would that be, just for those who don't know? Which so, uh, Sykes and Picot were the two guys who basically um, carved up the Middle East as it exists to some degree today um, from the remnants of the Ottoman Empire after the end of World War One. So that's how you get... Um, uh, you know, Syria and Lebanon is the area that went to France. And then you had, um, you know, countries like Jordan, Iraq, and um, Palestine. Uh, Did they do it under... any sort of objective to let a certain people or a certain religion or a certain um, nationality prosper or suffer? Well, of course, what we're talking about here is something like colonial holdings. So, uh, you know, anything that the British owned would have uh, been put towards the advancement of the British Empire at the time. Um, but when it comes to the groups that were actually living in these countries, for the most part, the borders were actually drawn uh, without any regard for um, where these different groups were living. And of course, that's been the source of a lot of problems. Uh, but it also bears mentioning that even in places like in the Balkans, after the fall of um, 
the Austro-Hungarian Empire that a lot of lines were drawn actually trying to give each ethnic group like your Serbs and your Croats their own homeland. But what inevitably happens even in that situation is that people don't live in ethnic groups with like hard borders with each other. There's often uh, a lot of people living in one community together, um, you know, so what happens is that when you try to draw a hard border, you're inevitably leaving some people, uh, you know, some Serbs, for example, on the, on the Croat side of the line and vice versa. And so, um, you know, these kinds of problems with nationalism are inevitable no matter where the lines get drawn. Right. And that fuels, um, the, the, the constant warring between states fuels nationalism and subsequently, um, economic growth for a certain yeah. small portion of the people. So that's at yeah, and- to them. Yeah, and it, it's important to understand that even if you could draw, like, like this is kind of like the nationalist dream that, like, you can draw the hard borders and then everyone maybe moves who's, like, over the wrong border and then everything's fine um, once everyone's, like, in their right national country. And that, of course, doesn't make any sense either because um, because of capitalism, countries are uh, inherently in competition with each other. Um, and so uh, you're still going to see, um, you know, competition and exploitation between these countries. And oftentimes... Like, as we see, um, there, there, are, there are a whole ton of different Arab countries that, like, you know, Arabs are arguably the same ethnicity or at least the same group of ethnicities. Uh, but there's still a lot of conflict between um, any two countries that are both Arab uh, because of other kinds of differences. So, um, you know, just getting everyone in the right nation state uh, is a not, you know, nationalism as a whole, complete non-starter for lasting peace. Okay, so the Middle East is not vibing in conclusion. Yeah, not vibing, and it's the French and the British fault, mostly. Ah, got it. Makes sense. Okay, so democratic confederalism stands against everything that defines the state. Where states enforce top-down control, democratic confederalism leaves communities largely to administer themselves. Where the state gears the political process towards the interests of a hegemonic group, Democratic confederalism seeks to extend the right to participate directly in the political process to as many disparate groups as possible. Quote, Each community, ethnicity, culture, religious community, intellectual movement, economic unit, etc., can autonomously configure and express themselves as a political unit. Unquote. And there's a looseness to the whole process that I think is really cool. If you have a problem that needs solving, you form a council of like-minded people and advocate directly for that change. You negotiate with other councils in your community. Maybe you even send delegates to participate in larger confederal councils if you require action on a larger scale. We talked in the Bookchin episode about how communities solve problems and mediate disputes in ways that kind of transcend our concept of democracy. Rather than voting, a council can deliberate and reach a consensus. Whether or not you're personally sold on democratic confederalism is largely going to come down to whether or not you trust communities to administer themselves in accordance with democratic values, of equal rights between men and women, and of different ethnic groups. It's up to the societies built on the foundations of democratic confederalism to prove that they can create a society that is more equal and free, but also that can defend itself from external threats. So this this does sound cool to me insofar as if you want to change anything, you, it is totally within your personal individual power, not some representative of you who has the power to change it, but you mm-hmm. specifically and your community around you have the power to actually change anything. And it leaves no room for people to be left out of the political process. You can't just go, you can't just uh, be into politics as a hobby. You have to be really super duper invested in it. 
But um, one quick question I have, you said yeah. there's, you said you kind of have to trust communities to admit to themselves in accordance with democratic values. So there's yeah. no, there's no, um, uh, there's no watchers. There's no, there's nobody checking in to make sure everyone's cool. Well, okay. And, and remember, we're not talking about Rojava right now. We're talking about the bo- the book Democratic Confederalism and the kind of system it is advocating for. Um, so given that, then ideally watchers sure i mean watchers are just society if people don't if the people in general don't like what you're doing then they don't want to let you do it anymore they'll form i'm saying but, are but, there like police but are there police i mean well i don't believe so uh, as far as like the society that bookchin and Agilon are ultimately trying to make um you wouldn't have that monopoly on violence. That's one of the things that defines the state that they're trying to destroy. Um, that said, when you look at Rojava today, you're looking at uh, what is effectively a monopoly on violence being held by um, the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, who are basically the military wing of the autonomous administration. Um, and then you have the Asaish, which are kind of like the military police. And and those two groups together basically form a monopoly on uh, the use of force. So, um, basically the answer is that it depends on what point in the project you're looking, um, you're looking at, because theoretically, when you hear, uh, the leaders, uh, in Rojava talk, the idea that they want to maintain a monopoly on violence is, um, generally something that they're not into. Yeah. So, but it's a necessary evil for the time being. That's at least the story. I guess in that case, um, let's get into what it would look like actually in practice or as close to. As close to um, as close as Ajlan described it being in practice. Yeah. So democratic confederalism was released nine years ago, um, and you know basically just before or around the same time as uh, the project was about to start. Just you know, just right there. So in the second half of this episode, it's probably going to be more than the second half. It's probably going to be the second two thirds or so. Um, <laughs> I want to investigate the degree to which the autonomous administration of North and East Syria embodies the ideals of Ajalon and democratic confederalism in practice. In attempting to understand the governing structures of Rojava, one of the first texts I read was the Charter of the Social Contract. The Charter is effectively the constitution of the autonomous administration. If it was the only document you read about government in the autonomous regions, you'd probably walk away thinking that Rojava is just a very progressive representative democracy. One article of the Charter guarantees at least 40% of the seats in the Legislative Assembly, which is like their Congress, basically, uh, will go to women, and others guarantee the rights of local communities to teach in their native language and use their own flags and symbols. Fundamentally, though, the system of government outlined in the Charter is one in which representatives are elected by popular vote to the Legislative Assembly, and then go to write legislation and generally run the country in a top-down manner. Progressive, maybe, but not revolutionary like Ajalon promised. But what the charter shows us is less than half of the full picture. Iranian Kurdish journalist Zanyar Amrani describes the everyday administration of the autonomous regions in an October 2015 article. The operative word he uses is commune, a word that doesn't appear once in the charter. In practical terms, the commune is more important to an individual's life than the legislative assembly by far. A commune is an association of people living in a geographic area. A village can be a single commune, and large cities will consist of many communes. 
A commune will usually consist of a few dozen to a few hundred families, and anywhere from a few hundred to over a thousand individuals. One of the most important ways in which communes differ from state power is that participation in them is wholly voluntary, where a state might lay claim to a discrete geographical area and enforce rules on everyone within it. A commune is loosely defined by geography, and people participate in it by choice. Participation in a commune means attending weekly meetings, electing leaders of the commune by popular vote, and potentially serving on committees dedicated to certain aspects of commune life, from economics, to self-defense, to women's rights. One specific case Amrani points to is the response by the communes to power shortages across the autonomous regions. Communes pooled resources from the families within them and bought generators to pick up the slack, but they also coordinated with each other and with the larger, more centralized assemblies to rebuild power lines and other infrastructure. This echoes quite nicely the image of ecological communities Bookchin draws for us at the end of Ecology of Freedom, in which local communities administer themselves where possible and work together in confederal organizations when necessary. Another bit of Bookchin that came through in Amrani's article was the prominence of the subjective in communal administration. Remember we had that talk about um, how we need to have room in politics for a little bit of subjective interpretation. Everything can't just be like positivist and all about facts. We need to have room to make moral arguments and say that something is the right thing to do because it's moral and it doesn't always have to be profitable. You remember that? Yeah, it can't all be just facts and logic. It's true. It turns out that Ben Shapiro is not only wrong, but he also just sucks. Yeah, not only does he suck, he's also five foot four. Please take that out. That? I love I love my short kings. I, I am I'm sure only, about that. I'm only five foot five, my man. Uh, that that's that's my flair on at least two subreddits. Is Ben Shapiro is five four? That's rough. He's also <laughs> he's also married to a doctor. Oh, did you know? He's married to a doctor. Did he tell you five hundred times? Wow, we're so creative dunking on Ben Shapiro. I know it's like, <laughs> well, it is a lowered hoop. How can you be so popular and still be considered low hanging fruit? I it. I think part of what makes him so we can we can we can junk this, but like yeah, generally yeah, one of the reasons I think he's so popular is because he's so easy to dunk on, but also yeah. physically and like like mentally. But he also speaks so fast that that dumber people cannot like comprehend like what he's saying. Just because he's fast and loud, everything else just washes right over them, and he uses words like therefore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he also like makes use of um, spaces uh, really effectively. Like he 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 always chooses to have debates in spaces where he has um, often the literal high ground, and he has control over the mic, and he has the whole crowd on his side, and he's usually debating people that are not really professional, uh, professionally trained to do that kind of thing. Whereas he is very much so done, yeah, uh, trained to do that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's not very impressive. Anyway, specifically. Amrani asks the then chief of the Movement for Democratic Society, to whom he refers to as AA, what prevents a commune's leader from taking on a more coercive and domineering role over the community? And the answer is ethics. The liberal instinct when you want to prevent a figure who's been imbued with some authority from abusing it in some way is to outline that abuse and forbid it by law. This makes sense if you're talking about a governor overseeing a mass of faceless millions. Ethics is subjective, where the law is descriptive and universal. If American district courts were regulated in their decision-making by ethics rather than law, it would be ripe for abuse, and almost certainly a complete disaster. But there are inherent limitations to legal solutions as well. An action can be unethical, and even actively harmful, but not technically illegal. 
Laws, on the whole, are notoriously filled with loopholes, which tend to widen as society advances through time, and the letter of the law's relation to real life becomes more abstract. Yeah, like, um, it's, it's okay if you violate the letter, uh, the spirit of the law, just not the letter of it. That's fine. That's fine. But are there, yeah. like, specific examples of that? Yeah, yeah. I think a good example um, would be the way that we talk about, like, gun control today, how we have like the second amendment um but there's all this like there's all this uh confusion surrounding the meaning of of the right to bear arms because like we 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 the meaning of the word gun is kind of different from today and so the wording of the law is like kind of useless to us today and it, we kind of just have to you know what i mean like do i know what you mean i had no idea you were going to talk about this i would i would love to talk about this for fucking hours Canada just banned. <laughs> I know it's so stupid. Every single time I see it, um, Canada like, like it's not that it's like not that it months. means one thing or the other. The meaning of the law, like the law, doesn't apply anymore because they aren't talking about the same world. Like we don't know what these people would have said if they were in our in a in our current situation. And plenty of leftists are perfectly pro gun, and that's like great and all. Um, but I don't like I don't see leftists pointing to the Second Amendment as 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 a justification for it they usually point to specific needs of people to stand up for themselves against oppressive institutions they don't usually make that legalist argument and i think that's a better way to go about it absolutely because the law doesn't necessarily say what they want it to say and it doesn't necessarily say anything of value to us today (laughs) yeah no I, i i agree i think it's important to separate out um people who need guns for specific purposes from two way people um yeah yeah and so yeah, that's that's kind of my point is that is that when you can when you can act a little bit more subjectively and kind of go by ethics, then um, you aren't like stuck trying to interpret what someone meant two hundred years ago uh, in a law that is about a world that doesn't exist anymore and like doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No, totally. And then it's and then it's doubled down upon in every uh, how, how do I say liberal gun control measure today like within the last two months canada banned like specifically like 1600 models of different firearms great what happens when there's now more newer differently named firearms that people can buy now it it, it's 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 just you're gonna have to do the same thing all over again and the way you can build guns you can literally make something that has the firing rate of an assault rifle that's legally called a pistol because no one is willing to like spell it out and define what an assault rifle is. And it's- yeah, it's, there's a weird, there's a weird way that assault rifles get defined in American gun law where they're like all defined, at least, okay. In New York at the very least, it's like very much defined by like the little like accoutrements that go around it, like the pistol grip and the detachable magazine and, and stuff like that. And it's like, then you go to some dude's house who's a big firearms collector and he's got uh, an AR-15 with a rifle grip on it and like a smaller mag and then a smaller magazine that's just the regular 30 round magazine with a little stopper in it. and he takes it out and he's basically got the same gun and it's perfectly legal and it's just like not an effective way to write uh, laws. But but it also shows the inherent Im- limitation of of laws that are meant to be perfectly descriptive and 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 objective and universal you know that's just kind of there already and so that's kind of why um 
the commune system in, in large part relies on ethics instead of on the letter of the law because by contrast uh, an action that's unethical can't also ta- be technically ethical so communes are often more effective at reaching workable solutions in legal cases than a traditional court system based on written law could be this is borne out in the fact that in 2014 for example the communes in jazira canton settled over 20,000 cases in the same time it took the centralized court system to settle 4,500. Now, there are differences between the kinds of cases being settled in the two systems. The communes are more likely to handle smaller disputes and interpersonal crimes, while the courts handle the more serious stuff like political assassinations. Domestic violence against women is also often handled by the centralized courts, and for this reason, I tend to believe the courts remain necessary for now. But I also think the communes are proving themselves perfectly capable of regulating daily life in a highly democratic fashion, and that's really cool. Yeah, those those two, like our, our discussion and, and the the, parag- the paragraphs flowed perfectly into each other, and I didn't notice you went back into the script. So I think that's that that's a point in our fa- that's a point in your favor, especially. And 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 so I, I feel like I'm being a little bit. Um, you know, you know, kind of just getting to the end of that, I feel like I'm being a little bit opaque with exactly how, like, a dispute might be settled in a commune. But literally, um, two people would, who have, like, a dispute, would come to the commune together. They would argue with it, and there would be, you know, the commune chiefs um, would be there to kind of, like, moderate. And, and, and the community as a whole would come up with a solution. Um, and uh, Omrani gave an example of a tribal territorial dispute that took only a month of commune deliberations to settle that in the centralized court systems could have taken 15 months uh, to settle. So does it, 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 it it's depend as long as you're using them in the right cases, uh, it's often a much, much better system. It seems on the ground uh, here at least. So my first like instinctual thought to that was, Hey, if everything was settled by the entire community, wouldn't that waste so much time? But well, also remember at that the these same are communities time? of a few hundred people, not of millions like we have today. So they're actually quite capable. But at the same time, um, this guy AA that Omrani interviewed that I was just talking about earlier um, w- was very outspoken that he wanted um, communes to ultimately become smaller so that they would become more efficient uh, in that regard and that he wanted there to be more of them in the same amount of space. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, like, it might uh, make people think twice about what they take to court, and they don't have this faceless entity of the state on their side. It's them, not versus, like, somebody, or actually, yeah, it's not them versus anybody, it's them and the commune trying to work out something together. Yeah, and people tend to just be more charitable with people that they have personal relationships with, and, 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 and tend to work towards solutions and consensus, instead of... Uh, when we're when we're like so separated and atomized, and we think of ourselves as this like one individual in this giant sea of faceless people, um, it's very hard to like. It's very easy to dehumanize uh, people that you're that you come into conflict with and uh, look at it purely in terms of competition. And so that's what I like about the commune system is that um, the people that you actually have to deliberate with and have disputes with are also the people that you know and you might go to lunch with. And I think that's ultimately a good thing. But I want to change gears a little bit and talk about social progressivism as a goal of the democratic movement in Rojava. The two axes of social inequality Ajalan points to are, of course, gender and ethnicity or nationality. And of course, between those two, gender equality has accounted for a huge portion of the good press the autonomous administration has received in Western media. 
If you only know one thing about Rojava, it's probably their badass women fighters, particularly those of the Women's Protection Units, or YPJ. According to statistics from the Kurdish regional government in northern Iraq, as many as 40% of the fighters resisting ISIS in the defense of Kobani were women. I think women's representation in the military is a really good thing, actually. If we return to our discussion of Bookchin, we remember that the beginnings of political power are found in the alliance between the social power of the male shaman and the physical power of the male warriors. This understanding of history is a central tenet of the YPJ's philosophy, and I think in the United States, at least, people are not used to seeing military service as an opportunity to wield political power. I think this stems in large part from the fact that our military is massive and highly centralized, but I also think it stems from our individualistic outlook. If you only look at military service for, on an individual level, then enlisting looks like signing up to take orders and generally make your life a lot harder for a few years. It's a difficult job that pays in valor and an honor. And that's basically true, but it's not the whole truth. The military obviously wields a decisive amount of political power, and when the military is all or mostly men, then you have a male monopoly on that power. What I like about the YPJ is that it's a women's solution to a women's problem. Women are a vast minority in the US military, and it's not because they aren't allowed to join, it's because the military as a space is actively hostile to women in many ways. One of the principal parts of this hostility is the prevalence of sexual abuse of enlisted women by their superiors. The YPG only enlists women, and thus provides women a safer opportunity to express political power and defend their communities. Meanwhile, the YPG, the People's Protection Units, where the YPJ branched off from, has never been exclusively male and still includes women fighters today. There's no men's protection unit because traditionally military structures are already male-centric. I just think it's a great example of Bookchin's equality of unequals. A woman looking to get involved in the defense of her community is in a different position than a man trying to do the same. The YPJ is an example of observing a social inequality and attacking it directly, rather than creating a gender-blind institution and just hoping that the inequality irons itself out over time. And I know this isn't a bookchin idea exclusively. Marx makes basically the same point about equality of unequals in the Critique of the Gotha program when he talks about how um, you can't just distribute the um, products of labor equally to all the people in the society. You have to factor in people's needs to, dis to figure out how to distribute things. We have unequal abilities and unequal needs. And so Marx said basically the same thing. Uh, and this is also just progressivism 101 for most leftists and even plenty of left-leaning liberals. I just think it's cool to point out good examples of this approach being successful in practice. So forgive me if you already talked about this, but how did that start? Was it, for the, was it like a requirement in the military for it to be a certain um, gender ratio? No, uh, as far as I understand, the military has never had gender quotas, um, but it turns out that when you give women an opportunity to serve in a environment that isn't actively hostile to them being there and doesn't take advantage of the kinds of um, social uh, vulnerabilities that women might have, uh, that they want to do it and do a really great job of it. And that's, that's really, it's really that simple. It unironically rules. Yeah, on a, yeah, absolutely. I, I like. I don't like to get too excited about things, but it's it, it's very. I think it's very obvious that uh, I'm someone who really, really appreciates what's happening um, in northeastern Syria right now, and um, I think it's something that we should all be paying close attention to. Hey, if they're not fucking imperialists, then it's fine by me. More power to them. 
And as far as uh, representation in the actual political process goes, we've already mentioned that at least 40% of the seats in the legislative assembly must be women. In the cases of the communes, the 40% rule also applies in the committees. Uh, and one of the committees is always specifically tasked with ensuring women's rights in the commune. Commune co-chiefs are popularly elected and must always consist of a man and a woman. Now, we, as Americans, we know more than anyone else that just getting a woman in government does not in itself make a society less oppressive. It doesn't even necessarily make it more feminist. However, the Autonomous Administration is clearly making an effort to improve the quality of life for the women living within its boundaries, particularly in relation to the domestic violence endemic to the Middle East as a whole. I don't think the increase in women's participation in politics and self-defense are coincidental to that at all. Well, Alex and dear viewer, you might have noticed by now that our discussion of gender equality in Rojava has been highly binary in nature. Did you notice that? I noticed it too. I did my best to find some information on the status of people who identify as trans or non-binary in the region, but the best I could find were some unverifiable individual comments saying it's basically fine. And I don't personally feel comfortable speaking with any authority on this because I just don't know. But to be honest, the lack of information in general does give me a little bit of pause. It's likely that the status of trans and non-binary individuals varies from place to place, and with that said, I don't see any reason why committees dedicated to the rights of trans and non-binary individuals in the autonomous administration couldn't be a future possibility. And, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry I don't have more detailed conclusions on this one, but I just wanted to make sure we kept this aspect of the gender question in mind throughout this discussion. No, absolutely. And I, I won't yell at you for making, um, for making that a pun in the beginning of this uh, little segment, but I feel like it'd be a logical extension to extend rights to people of... Um, to, to non-cisgendered people. Yeah, and in some of the statements I read from, from, from uh, like, kind of ideological leaders within, um, like, the YPJ have, have described uh, the democratic movement in Rojava as um, gender abolitionist in, in long-term thinking, um, which... <laughs> That's kind of a cool opinion, phrase. What? That's kind of a fucking cool phrase. Gender abolition. Have you ever heard of gender abolitionism before? Oh, no. Is that, is that not something you just made up? No, it's a real thing. Holy fuck, I'm learning so much. don't believe in gender at all. Damn. I'm going to get like a patch of that um, for my jacket. And if you're actually a gender abolitionist, like in practice, you're probably pretty supportive of trans people because to say like, ooh, you should like not be allowed to be trans because abolish gender is a really stupid thing to say. Um, <laughs> so if you're actually a gender abolitionist, you probably support trans people in yeah. my experience. Yeah, that, 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 that makes logical sense. Let's calm down a little bit. The subject of ethnic equality in Rojava is a bit more contentious, admittedly. Rojava is often thought of as a primarily Kurdish project, but the Kurds are, of course, just one group that inhabits the region. Arabs, Turkmen, Assyrians, Yazidis comprise minorities across the whole of Rojava. According to a report from the Washington Institute, Kurds made up about 60% of the total population of the autonomous region as of August 2016. Since then, there have been some territorial shifts, such as the capture of Raqqa by the Syrian Democratic Forces and the conquest of Afrin Canton by, in the west uh, of the autonomous region by Islamic forces with the help of Erdogan's administration in Turkey. The shifting of control over large pieces of territory like this means that people are moving around a lot too, so the demographic numbers today are probably off a bit from this report. Also, 
That same report seemed to take for granted the idea that the Kurds in northeastern Syria were conducting some form of ethnic homogenization or even ethnic cleansing, but doesn't really go into more detail or explain why pluralism can't be an option. And I suspect it has to do with the Institute being a neocon think tank whose board of advisors includes some classic American warmongers like Henry Kissinger and Condoleezza Rice. Oof. Yeah, so, but, but, um... We're not we're not going to take uh, their analysis too 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 <laughs> seriously for that reason. But uh, I, I'm choosing to assume that their population numbers are probably fairly accurate. There have, however, been some more credible accusations of instances of ethnic cleansing and forced displacement by the YPG, uh, particularly against Arab families. The Turkish government accused the Syrian Kurds of forcibly displacing Arab families in newly conquered territory. A 2017 UN commission reported that forced displacements were occurring, but did not constitute war crimes because the presence of Islamic State mines and IEDs, as well as the potential for the local population to be communicating in some way with the Islamic State, constituted a military justification for moving those people. However, the commission also reports that the humanitarian aid given to those displaced was not sufficient. And um, an, an Amnesty International report in 2015 made similar accusations as the Kurdish as the Turkish government and argued that those displaced denied the presence of mines in the area and were not able to see or contest any evidence that they were coordinating with the Islamic State. My guess, if I'm going to be honest, is that there probably are cases of forced displacement that were not motivated entirely by military need. This is something that happens with some frequency around the world, and I think it would be naive to assume that Becoming anarchists automatically inoculates people from violating the rights of others in a time of war. Uh, Assuming that's the case, then this obviously represents a failure on the part of the autonomous administration and its military arms to live up to the expectations it set for itself. At the same time, these are things that happen in war, and when you look at the powers surrounding Rojava, the Syrian government under Assad, Turkey under Erdogan, and what remains of the Islamic State, you see a whole bunch of entities that are deeply experienced in ethnic cleansing themselves. Whatever extent to which forced displacement is occurring within the autonomous administration is unacceptable, but I think the anti-nationalist, directly democratic institutions in Rojava, as inspired by Bookchin and focused for the Middle East by Ajalan, are a better path to peace and ethnic pluralism in the long term than nationalism ever can be. I think it's a really important way to end it because I feel like too often people can write off a certain movement or a group of people or an ideology just because of one little thing. You know, they, they don't, they, a lot of uh, leftists specifically see, um, they, they think you're supposed to speed towards an end goal in a speedboat, not like you're in a sailboat and like slowly tacking towards it, going in the general direction, shifting back and forth. Right. This may not be perfect, but it's a hell of a lot better than, you know, what we're doing, what, what America is doing in the Middle East and what a lot of countries are doing to their own citizens. Yeah, yeah. It's like um, there, there's there's, I think, a tendency to assume that anything a leftist movement does, it does expressly because it's a leftist movement. Um, this is kind of like. The way that we talk about like old communist regimes, which like um, plenty of, of, of room to criticize uh, countries like the Soviet Union. But the way that we talk about um, deaths caused by those countries, um, 
we attribute deaths to communism that happen in communist countries uh, that we would never attribute to capitalism, even though deaths like those happen under, uh, you know, in the United States all the time. People starve to death in the United States all the time. Um, so when you don't take the time to analyze why something that's uh, not acceptable happened and determine, you know, you know, figure out what the cause is. And if it's something to do with what kind of leftist framework you're working from that's justifying uh, that violence, then that's obviously a problem. Um, but oftentimes it's kind of just people who happen to be leftists doing the same things that people do in all other kinds of situations. And it's still unacceptable. It's still not okay. But to stop being leftist is not uh, the solution. And I think that um, we kind of let right-wingers run with the narrative a bit too much on that. I don't know. I feel like, I feel like there's, there's, there's something to be said. Like anybody can hijack a movement, right? And like, well, that's true. Yeah. Like, like you said, if it's, but if even it's, a movement that isn't hijacked is going to do some shit. That's not okay. Almost, almost inevitably. I feel like, and, and some, and some movements, um, the framework themselves are, make it more, more likely to be, to be hijacked because they're inherently reactionary and um, more, it's easier for grifters to take control of it. But yeah. if, if you really actually dig into things, you know, and don't just, uh, you know, like read a headline and draw your own assumptions, you know, then I don't know. I feel like it's a smarter way to go about things. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, you know, it's one of those things that everyone agrees with on paper and then no one actually does. Um, including me a lot of the time. I mean, I read headlines and then go off of them. Yeah, the amount of articles I've seen on Reddit, just read the title, clicked up, vote, moved on yeah, with my life. so many times. Fucking. I try not to say things on the podcast that I haven't verified, but I, I do sometimes <laughs> uh, say things in my personal life that, I, that are a little bit less verified. And, you know, I think everyone does that sometimes. Yeah. Um, we should probably, you should probably plug us for the people who already know us and love watching us already. Yeah, dude, absolutely. If you want to interact with me specifically, uh, you can go on our Twitter at We Read Theory Pod. Uh, we are. And if all... you want to interact with me specifically, you can fuck off. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll reach him by Telegram, Carrier Pigeon, or um, just deliver a post-it note with your message on it to his house. Um, yeah, I, I will try my best. We are literally on almost every podcast app available, Overcast, Podcast Addict, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Um, if you do really like us, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, we got a, a bunch of reviews after last time, after uh, last time I mentioned this, uh, which is great. Thank you all again for that. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm posting throughout the day. If you do want to follow us on Twitter, I love it. I love when anyone interacts with me it makes quarantine a lot more fun and tolerable he doesn't really have friends I, none of us have friends right now mark it's quarantine <laughs> um is that it yeah that about sums it up all right that was we read theory for your 12 day interval um love you all have a good night and fuck 12